Good morning. Isn't the sight of the sun a glorious sight? Can I get an amen? I know that Greg already mentioned that, but it bears repeating. We're grateful uh, for the sun today. We're grateful for several days with no rain. You know, there were times throughout this last week that I debated throwing out the sermon and going up to Home Depot and buying a bunch of gopher wood and having us build an ark in the parking lot during the assembly. Uh, But it looks as if the waters are beginning to recede. And of course, we do need to be in prayer uh, for those who have been affected by these floods, especially to our north and west where the rainfall has been even heavier. A lot of people are suffering and, and we need to be praying for them. We can all think about things that are unpleasant, but that are good for us at the same time. They're not fun while we're doing them, but they are beneficial. I think about as a kid, and maybe you remember your parents telling you, eat your vegetables, and some of us didn't like our green vegetables. We didn't want to eat the broccoli or the green beans. I remember my brother and my mother would have a standoff every time we would sit around the table. She would tell him to eat his vegetables, and he would not, because not only did he hate vegetables, he was stubborn as a mule. And so they would sit there uh, you know, with this stare down long after dinner was over until he ate that one green bean. And then when he would eat it, he would act like you know, he was choking and, and uh, sputtering and spitting and all this stuff. You know, He was real dramatic. But our vegetables, we know... Maybe we didn't enjoy eating them, but that was for good reason that our parents would tell us to eat them. They were good for us. They would help our bodies become healthy and grow. How about another memory from being a kid? Receiving discipline? Getting a spanking? Never pleasant as a kid. Um, My parents, on a couple different occasions, would say, maybe what your parents said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I wanted to say, oh, well, how about we change spots and we'll test that theory, okay? That sounds like total nonsense to me. But we're thankful now, as adults, I think most of us are, that our parents did discipline us. And we know that if we don't take time to discipline our children while they're young, we are setting them up for significant problems later in life. Not fun to be disciplined, not fun to get a spanking when you're a kid, but it's good for us. And what about exercise? No, I didn't say extra fries. I said (laughs) exercise. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. Maybe you got to get up early in the morning to do it, to go on that walk, because there's no other time once the day gets underway to do it, and you get sweaty, and maybe you're sore the next day. It's not pleasant, but we know it's good for us. You know, I saw a, a meme And I really hate to talk about memes with the teenagers not here because they automatically know about memes. Do you know what a meme is? A meme is like a funny image with a funny caption uh, posted on it. I saw a meme and it was a baby, kind of a a, um, chubby baby, we'll say that. Cute, chubby baby and a giant pizza in front of the baby. And um, the meme said, yeah, I'm into fitness fitting this whole pizza in my mouth. And that's maybe what some of us might say when it comes to exercise and fitness. That's my kind of fitness. 
not pleasant to exercise always, but it's good for us. You know what else is good for us? Reading Leviticus. (laughs) Those of you who are laughing are probably those of you who have been reading Leviticus. If you have been doing our yearly Bible reading, you know that we are almost finished with this book that we call Leviticus. And you also know that reading this book can be unpleasant. When we talk about difficult readings in the Bible, most often our minds go straight to Leviticus. And even saying that word, that word, that word doesn't even taste good on your tongue or your lips, does it? Leviticus. You may be thinking that is just really tough reading. The arcane rules, the ancient rituals that I do not understand from ancient Judaism, the repetitiveness, you know, it seems that it says the same thing over and over again. It can be unpleasant reading. But I am here to tell you this morning that reading Leviticus is good for you. It will benefit you as a believer, as a Christian. And so my challenge to you, and this challenge probably comes a little bit too late because if you've kept up with your reading, you're almost done. But maybe we have some people here that you've been doing good on your reading until you got to Leviticus. And when you started Leviticus, you thought, oh man, I can't do this. I'm going to have to skip that one and maybe come to the next one or Or maybe I'm just going to mark my name off the board. I'm going to scribble it out. Nobody will ever know I committed to reading the Bible. If you stopped before you really got into Leviticus, I want to challenge you. Keep reading. That's my challenge this morning. Eat your vegetables. Get your exercise. (laughs) Take your lumps and read Leviticus. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you what benefits, what gifts that we are given when we read this book. Number one. When we read Leviticus, we develop a deeper grasp of God's holiness. And if you've got your little journal, many of you have journals to go along with your reading. This is point number one this morning. You can write it down. Reading Leviticus benefits us in this way. It is a gift to us that in reading we come to a better grasp of the holiness of God. A lot of people these days like to talk about having a personal relationship with the Lord. A personal relationship with their Savior. And we don't see that language a whole lot in the Bible. Certainly we have the language of relationship. And I am not knocking that at all. I use that that language all the time. And I think it's quite appropriate as we talk about how we relate to God. And there's that word. I can't seem to get away from that word. But if we overly stress this personal relationship thing with God, we are are at risk of developing a casual approach towards God. And God can become to us like a cosmic buddy in the sky, like just a friend. If this is the only way we talk about God, if we are only speaking of having a personal relationship with Him, The book of Leviticus guards against that, among other places in the Scripture. Because when we read Leviticus, we remember God's holiness. And we remember the wide chasm that exists between us and God. You read throughout Leviticus all of the various ways that humans are made unclean, at least under the old law before God. 
all of the numerous ways that we become impure. And a lot of you reading might have been thinking, why is it that that makes a person unclean or that makes a person unclean? Because a lot of it in Leviticus is just natural bodily functions. And you wonder, why does that make a person unclean before God? Well, it's not necessarily about that person's individual sinful condition. But it is about, more generally, the brokenness and the fallenness of our world and the fact that we exist at such a, distant, uh, at such a distance from a holy, perfect God that we can't even, we can't even imagine how distinct and how set apart He is from us. And so as we read Leviticus, we get this stark reminder of our impurity and our uncleanness before God. And our text this morning from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, where God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That word holy, it just means set apart, unique, distinct. And God says, if I am to dwell in your midst, me, a holy, set apart, distinct God, then you must also be holy. And Leviticus is about what the people must do in order to have God dwelling in their midst. In order to be made pure and to be made clean. Now, this doesn't mean we should stop talking about God's grace. We must not stop talking about God's grace. I'm not suggesting we swing the pendulum back in the other direction. God is not less gracious than we imagine. He's simply more holy than we thought. And we must never forget that we worship a mighty, awesome, holy God before which we should fear and tremble. And certainly God is gracious, but I believe we got to first grasp His holiness before we can fully appreciate His grace. We've got to understand how distinct and set apart He is, and when we get that, we will be more grateful for how He bridges the chasm between us and Him by His grace and His love. If you don't get His holiness, if you don't get His distinctness, then you really never fully come to appreciate the significance of His love. If you just start with His love and His grace, then okay, well that's great. But if you start with His holiness and His his set-apartness, and then you get to His love and His grace, oh, you appreciate it so much better. For us to truly be grateful for His forgiveness, we must first experience His fierceness. And you experience the fierceness of God in Exodus and in Leviticus and, of course, in other parts of God's Word. When we read this book of Leviticus, we come to a deeper grasp of God's holiness, and that is so important for us as Christians. Here's number two. Here's the the second reason why reading Leviticus is good for you. By reading it, you will come to a firmer understanding of the New Testament. And that is true for the entire Old Testament, and and I, I feel like I harp on this a good bit in classes and in sermons. If we don't have a good working knowledge of the Old Testament, then our understanding of the New Testament is going to be limited. We're not going to get the fullness and the richness of it if we don't understand how God was working in and through His people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament is a direct sequel 
to the old and what happens in the new builds on what was established in the old. So it's true of the entire Old Testament, but let's talk briefly about Leviticus. And I want to connect some passages in Leviticus with the Gospel of Mark because you've also read Mark in your yearly Bible reading. And uh, so here are a few examples. Do you remember when the leper was healed by Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45? A man with leprosy, or it could have been any number of skin diseases, that sort of, it sort of all falls under this umbrella in the Scriptures that, that is called leprosy. He goes to Jesus and he says, If you will, can you please make me clean? And Jesus says, with pity and compassion upon the man, I will be clean, and he touches the man. Now, you might, if you read that story, having not read the Old Testament, having not read Leviticus, you'll appreciate the the power of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus in that moment. But if you've read Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, and you've seen how leprosy and and related skin diseases make a person unclean before God, and you've seen the elaborate process that one must go through in order to be put back in a clean state before God, then the significance of what Jesus does in this moment is multiplied and magnified for you because you are not supposed to touch somebody with leprosy because that would make you likewise unclean. And in that moment, Jesus' power flows from him to this leprous man making him clean. Whereas we would think, or people reading it from a Jewish background would think, his leprosy would flow from him to Jesus. The opposite happens. And so you see, understanding this sort of Jewish context helps you get a better grasp on what Jesus is doing here. Here's another example. From Mark chapter 5, I preached about this text not too many weeks ago. The woman who comes to Jesus, desperate to be healed, with the issue of blood. She'd had an issue of blood for 12 years. She'd seen all of these doctors. She hadn't gotten any better. In fact, she had grown worse, spent every penny that she had. She comes to Jesus and, and, and sneaks up to Him in a crowd, wanders through this multitude of people, And she has such faith, according to the gospel writers, she believes, if I just touch the edge of his robe, I will be healed. And what happens? The blood immediately dries up. Jesus' power flows out from him, and he feels it, and he says, hey, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you, Jesus? Look at all these people thronging about you. So many people have touched you. Jesus wants to speak. He wants to have an encounter with this woman She comes before him trembling. She tells him exactly what happens. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Powerful story. Powerful story if you had never read anything in the Old Testament, right? If you just picked up a Bible and opened up to Mark and read that. But even more powerful, and one of you told me this after you got finished reading Leviticus 15. I have such a greater understanding of the story with, of the woman with the issue of blood now having read Leviticus 15. And having understood now that her ailment made her ritually and ceremonially unclean. 
and how she risked so much to get to Jesus and how she was not supposed to touch Jesus and how it's, it's significant that he had compassion upon her and spoke a tender, uh, a familial word in calling her daughter. So your understanding of this story just deepens when you've read the Old Testament. One more. When Jesus is talking to his apostles in Mark chapter 7 about what defiles a person, what makes a person unclean, and in that passage Jesus says, it's not what you eat, it's not what goes into the belly that makes you unclean, it is what comes out of the heart. So it is impure speech, and it's, it's um, all sorts of immorality in, in actions and the way that you comport yourself in your life, that's what makes you unclean. And we read that. If you just picked up a Bible and read that, you'd say, oh, of course, that's right. But when you go back and read Leviticus chapter 11 and you see that in Judaism, there were clean foods and unclean foods, clean animals and unclean animals. And so what Jesus is doing here is radical in a Jewish context. He is making all foods clean, according to Mark, who who tells us as much. Jesus says it's not about what you eat. It is about what comes out of the heart. That is what defiles a person. That's what makes you unclean. And you don't understand that unless you've read Leviticus. And because many of you have now read Leviticus, you get that. You get that Jesus is undoing a lot of of what had been established in the law. In each of these examples, Jesus, as the powerful Son of God, is making what is unclean, clean. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one with the power and authority to rewrite the very law that he had written and given to Moses as God in the flesh. So see how your understanding of the New Testament grows when you've read Leviticus. And how about the prohibition against eating the blood of an animal? In chapter 17, verse 11, we are told the reason why this was prohibited. And we're not always told in Leviticus why you're supposed to do this or that. A reason is not always given, but here a reason is given. In Leviticus 17.11, you are supposed to uh, avoid eating the blood of an animal because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, to, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, if you're a Christian and you read that about how blood is what makes atonement because it it is the blood of a person that gives them life. If you're a Christian, what are you thinking about when you're reading those words? You're thinking about the atonement that we now have through Jesus Christ. And you're thinking about how that verse looked ahead through hundreds of years through the ages, pointed pointed ahead to the arrival of Christ. You're thinking about the new covenant that God establishes in the New Testament that is enacted by the what? The blood of Christ. My mind goes specifically to when Jesus is sharing the Last Supper with His apostles. And he's instituting the Lord's Supper, a feast that we still celebrate today, every first day of the week. And Jesus says, when he takes the cup of the fruit of the vine, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And so you begin to understand why blood, the blood of Christ, is so significant. 
when you read Leviticus. Now this leads us into point number three of four, and that is when we read Leviticus, we come to a better appreciation of the new covenant, of the covenant under which we operate, the covenant that's been established with us through Christ, with God. Reading Leviticus along with Hebrews, we read Leviticus and Hebrews back and forth. That was very enriching to me because I would read details of the old covenant in Leviticus and then I would read Hebrews and be reminded that I am part of a much better covenant according to the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 6 and 7. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as on the screen here the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But it was faultless and it was incomplete. And it couldn't accomplish the task of making a people holy, truly holy and perfect before the Lord. But you know who is capable of making us perfect and holy before the Lord? It is Jesus Christ. And it is His blood. And so we are part of an infinitely better covenant. And aren't you thankful? This was one of the the big takeaways from reading Leviticus for me. I would read it, and every chapter I would read, I would think, I am so thankful that I'm under the new covenant and not under the old covenant. All of the sacrifices and the rituals and the stuff they had to keep track of and the states of impurity and uncleanness that had to be handled and so on and so forth. It's exhausting when you read it. You think, how did they keep track of all that? And how did they stay on top of all that in order to be in a right relationship with God in order to be holy. I'm so thankful for Jesus. So thankful that I'm part of this new covenant. And the Hebrews author says, you know, the old was merely a shadow of the new. Just a type in the past. A a, a glimpse, a preview. So we've got now a better plan, a better hope, and a better priest in Jesus Christ. One more verse from Hebrews chapter 7, 27. He has no need, Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, which is what the priest did in Leviticus and throughout you know, Jewish history over and over again. The Hebrews writer says, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He has no need to offer sacrifices repeatedly for himself and for the people, as the priests did in the Old Testament, because he himself was the sacrifice. He offered himself once and for all, for all of us. And praise the Lord that we are part of this new covenant. One more, one more benefit that you get from reading Leviticus. You get a larger perspective on God's love. We started with God's holiness Let's end with his love. When you read Leviticus, and maybe this one seems strange to you, but when I read Leviticus, I get a broader perspective on his love. You know, we really need to dispense with the notion that the God of the Old Testament is all about judgment while the God of the New Testament is all about love. The God of the New Testament mets out judgment. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They met the immediate judgment of God 
for rebelling against Him. And throughout the New Testament, the authors look forward to a day of judgment when we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for how we spent our time in the body. And so the God of the New Testament is also concerned about judgment. And the God of the Old Testament demonstrates His love. And, and the way that I'm even talking about this makes it seem like there's two gods. There's not two gods. It's the same God and He's full of judgment and justice and He's full of grace and love at the same time. God demonstrates His love in the Old Testament as well. And I hope that you are seeing that as you are reading. You know what? Leviticus is a love letter. And maybe you are thinking, that is like no love letter I've ever received. <laughs> and if I got a love letter like that, I'd be gone. You know, I'd bolt. It is an unorthodox, unconventional love letter, but it is a love letter all the same. Because God provides boundaries for His people, rules in which they should operate. He builds... A, a, he provides a, a, an opportunity for them to have a well-ordered existence. Why? Because He loves them. Why do you slap your child's hand when they're going towards an electrical outlet with a fork? It's not because you want to slap their hand. It's not because you dislike them. It's because you want to protect them. And that child doesn't always understand. That child thinks, well, this will be fun if I stick a fork into the socket. But we know better. The child thinks that we're just picking on the child or being too hard on the child or, or you know, hurting the child. But no, that's not the case at all. They have a limited understanding. We are doing what we're doing out of love because we want to protect the child. Recently, our youngest daughter, Avery, was reaching for a, a side table, was about to pull it over on herself, and I raised my voice and said, no, and you know, that freaked her out. And she thought dad was mad at her and that I was, you know, keeping her from having her fun. And I will admit, sometimes I raise my voice with my children when it's not appropriate. And I regret those times. This was not one of those times. I felt like I needed to make a statement in a, in a loud fashion to prevent her from doing herself harm to protect her. God provides all these rules and regulations not to limit the people's fun, but to give them their best life possible. To help them exist in, in well-defined boundaries so that they could have an, an abundant life. Leviticus is a love letter, and when you read it, you get a larger perspective on the love of God. You know, Leviticus holds the love and the holiness of God together. And we like to swing to one direction or the other, and some generations focus a lot on the holiness and the judgment and the justice of God. And other generations focus on the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Leviticus, as well as the rest of the Scriptures, hold these ideas together in perfect harmony, in tension. Because God is big enough to be all these things simultaneously. I love this line from a C.S. Lewis book called Prince Caspian. It's the sequel to The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And there's a character in these books, the great mighty lion Aslan, who is to be compared to Jesus Christ. Lewis wants us to connect Aslan when we read to the Lord. And the children in this book had not seen Aslan yet, and when they spot him for the first time, well, this is the line from C.S. Lewis's classic. Now Aslan had stopped and turned and stood facing them, 
looking so majestic that they felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. When we get a glimpse of God, it is to provoke within us the same reaction that the children had when they saw the mighty lion Aslan. It fills our hearts with gladness and joy because of His grace, but it also makes our knees knock a little bit. It it produces fear and trembling in us because of His holiness. He is full of holiness and love at the same time. And the gospel is this. The gospel is that Jesus satisfies the demands of a holy God and He extends the love of a gracious God at the same time. In the same act, at the same place, the cross. He satisfies the demands of a holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin must be taken care of for us to have a shot at a relationship with God. And at the cross, Jesus handles our sin. He bears it on His shoulders. He nails it to the cross. And it is ours to bear no more. He satisfies the demands of a holy God, but in the very same act, He extends the love of God to every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. In one act. At the cross, God's love is extended, His holy demands satisfied, and at that moment, a new covenant is established, a covenant into which we can enter. And we can now be holy as He is holy, as He told the people in Leviticus. He says the same thing in the New Testament. Be holy as I am holy. How do we do that? We do it by the blood of Christ. We do it by being buried in the watery grave of baptism where we come into contact with the blood. And every day after, as we're honest with God about our sins, as we confess our sin to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. And the blood of Christ continually cleanses us and makes us clean. And today you have the opportunity to contact that blood. You can come, confess Jesus and be baptized and be raised up to new life. Or if you're struggling in any other way, this is a time for you to come with any spiritual need that we need to lift up before the Father together. Why don't you do that as we stand and sing?